Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz, and we're excited to record episode 13 and have Ted Schlein with us today, who um, is really the most notable cybersecurity investor in the United States, but really the world. Um, Ted is a general partner at Ballistic Ventures and, and chairman there, so they're about 12 months in, excited to hear a little bit about what they're up to, but also at Kleiner Perkins. And... Ted is a really strong partner to the national security community. So I'm excited to talk about that today and what really drove that connectivity and how he serves as an interlocutor between Silicon Valley and and the national security community. So, Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We want to start with your story. We love doing that at the top of our our show. Um, Some have referred to you as an early unofficial Apple product tester. And as I mentioned, now you are a close partner to the national security community, but your main role is an investor in Silicon Valley looking at cybersecurity. So could you tell our listeners about what got you into this today? How to connect all those dots. Um, Well, if you go back uh, to, say, the mid-80s, I I was very fortunate growing up that my father was on the board of Apple Computer um, in the very early days. So he he was on the board from something like the the mid to late 70s to like the late 80s or so. And so growing up, I had a computer. Um, They gave every board member one of everything they made. And my dad actually didn't know how to use a computer. It wasn't why he was on the board. So he used to give them to my sister and I. And so, you know, my first computer was a, a, a two plus, and then I had a two E, a two C. Um, we had a Lisa around the house. Uh, you know, I, I got an original Macintosh, and then, uh, you know, you get a Mac 128, a Mac 512, a Mac Plus. I think by the time I went to college, I had a Mac Plus with a laser writer. So anyway, I, I, I always had a computer in, in, in my life growing up, which was very unusual. Um, uh, so when I graduated from college and uh, I went to my, my first uh, startup company, which was Symantec, uh, I showed up with the only Macintosh in the entire company. Now, there were only 30 or 40 people at Symantec at the, at the time, but uh, um, um, I, my love of the Mac uh, and all things about the Mac was 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 real. My sister actually worked as a Mac evangelist. Um, I, I knew all the people promoting the Mac, uh, the, the folks that did all the software for the Mac. I, I, I knew, and um, uh, the first product I did for Symantec was something called Semantic Utilities for the Mac. Uh, which was basically my version of Norton Utilities, but done for the Macintosh. No one had ever done it, a compendium of utility products. And so designed that, brought that to market. It did, it did really well. Um, uh, and the CEO of Symantec at the time, Gordon Eubanks, said, well, what else you got up your sleeve? And I said, well, there's these things called computer viruses that people are going to care about. Um, and to date, there's no commercial software for it. It was all shareware. McAfee was the, the main shareware product that was available, and it was kind of an interesting business model. And, but it was, it was kind of, it was 
starting to do pretty well. Now you got to keep in mind there were maybe like 30 or 40 viruses <laughs> uh, versus, you know, since we started talking, 30 or 40 viruses have been created. So, you know, it was, it was not like a, a, you know, it wasn't a, a big problem yet. And local area networks really hadn't been established yet either. So everyone, you, you exchanged information via floppy disks. So um, I convinced the, I convinced the folks at Symantec that, uh, that the next product I wanted to do was going to be this antivirus software. And we should commercialize antivirus. And uh, I, uh, I worked with this wonderful developer. He gets zero credit in the industry. His name is Paul Coza. He probably owns half the state of Maine, would be my guess. Uh, but uh, he, and he and I uh, sat down, I designed it, and he built it, uh, what was called Symantec Antivirus for the Macintosh. And it was the first commercial sort of antivirus software. Um, and then people sort of say, I'll tie it back to the Mac question you asked me. <laughs> you know, why the Mac? My theory was Mac users actually really liked their computers and PC users didn't care about them. It was like a tool. Um, And therefore, if you could prevent viruses from being on this thing that they really cared about, they would buy the software that they they would actually care about it. Um, So that was, that was uh, the, the theory. My first ad that I did was a, a flatlining. So think, think about like an EKG and it's just flatlines. And, and the headline was, do you want this to happen to your Macintosh? So there's a little bit of you know, scare tactics to, uh, uh, to, to get them to think about this. Um, but that's what, uh, I mean, that's what started the commercial antivirus business for, for Symantec. And, um, and then we bought Norton computing. We did the PC version, what I had done on the Macintosh side. And um, that's a, uh, it ties together a couple of things I think you, you, you brought. We haven't gotten into the national security side of it yet. <laughs> hey, Ted, uh, it's great to have you here. It's, um, you know, you're one of those unique individuals, as you say, it's got a foot in all these different camps. And innovation to me is how to bring all these things together, maybe in new combinations. But, you know, as the DOD and national security, they, they all think they understand venture capital. I find a lot of them don't actually understand venture capital. They think it's all about, you know, developing technology or something. Can you give our listeners a kind of your sense, you know, the next you know, decade or two of your after your Mac experience and Symantec was, you know, being very successful in the venture world. What's, what's your, you know, what's venture 101 and then how might that best apply in the national security space? All right, Honda. Um, so, yeah, after 10 years at Symantec, I've been at, at uh, Venture Capitalist for the last 26 years. Uh, most, you know, 25 of that with just uh, Kleiner Perkins. And, uh, um, you know, if you, the, the number one thing you look for as a venture capitalist is a great entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so, it's, people always say, what's the secret sauce? And I say, eh, it's people. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, it is, it is very much about the people. And I always say, I'll take a great team and a bad idea over a great idea and a bad team any day because the great team figures out it's a bad idea and they change it and they end up doing something good. And I've seen that pan out so many times. Um, and so the, the main ingredients is uh, when you're looking for an early stage company uh, uh, is who, um, what have they done? Why do they have the credibility? Why are the capability? Can they get other people to follow them? Uh, because you can't do this alone. Will they be great recruiters? Will they be great salespeople? At the end of the day, you got to get somebody to buy your product. Um, you got to raise money. That's all selling, you know? Um, and 
addressing a, a large market. Um, uh, I, I had, a, had a, a, an old partner at kind of Perkins who said, you know, it's just as hard to build a small company as to build a large company. So you might as well go build, try and build a large company. Um, and it's, it's true. Uh, so you want these, these large uh, potential untapped markets where you have an amazing team that can build a defensible technology position around it. And getting all those things to line up is not easy. It's, uh, it, 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 it's very hard. And every so often it happens. It's like lightning in the bottle and it, 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 it does something fantastic. And we've seen unbelievable creations come out of Silicon Valley, uh, driven by that entrepreneurial spirit and community. Um, and you know, and now that's been exported around the country and, you know, quite honestly around the world. Uh, you know, when I, when I got involved, I think 85% of all venture was done in the United States. I think that's down to about 50%. Um, we could argue that's a good thing or a bad thing. And uh, I can make both sides of that argument. Uh, but uh, it's because the model works, which is risk capital. Look, I, I can lose all of our money when, when you make an investment. Uh, and guess what? Most of them don't work out. <laughs> That's okay. The venture model is all about risk-taking. It's all about measuring the amount of money you, you deploy against building that company, solving that problem, um, and removing risk. And every venture, by the way, has four kinds of risk. There's people risk, technology risk, market risk, and financial risk. And your goal is to remove versions of the risk along the way and then put your money in as that happens. Um, and, uh, so it is, as I said, it's very hard to do. I would argue venture is a relatively boutique industry in as an, as an asset class. And I always hesitated when people would call it an asset class. It's really not very big. Like if you took the entire venture industry, even with the growth side of venture versus the early stage, it's probably equivalent like three hedge funds in New York. I don't know, you know. But I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a huge part of the economy, yet it delivers an enormous part of the GDP um, because so much of, uh, of the country's innovation engine started with, with these early stage venture dollars. So now you, you asked Hondo, you know, uh, uh, you know, should the DOD apparatus and other parts of the government be in the venture business? Um, I've never had like an, a, uh, an IRR conversation with anyone in, 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 that, in that group. I've, I've never had anyone give me a, a great conversation about, you know, multiples of capital, uh, removal of risk, um, all the things that it takes to make it worthwhile to do venture. Uh, it's, uh, uh, and so I've never believed that's a great use of, of government dollars. Uh, you know, I, there's plenty of money to, to go after the opportunities if the people are there and the opportunity is there. Um, you, you can't just make it up from whole cloth. Right. I, I often say one of the best things the government could do is provide clear, transparent view of what they need. Because if, if folks know what they need, if you can understand the addressable market, the money is there, whether it's venture or at some other two. The challenge the government seems to be with some confidence and clarity talking about what they actually need and then buying what they say they need. Um, yeah. So a question I, I get asked 
probably, I would say, I'd say 10 times a year by somebody from DOD uh, is, you know, what, what, what's wrong with, with the system? <laughs> you know, how do we get it to work? And I've probably answered this question for the last 20 plus years. And, I, you know, part of it is, one, they just make it so hard. I, you know, just, you know, it, you know I, we, our companies are used to selling to the largest corporations in the world. Um, so I get it. If you looked at the DOD as the, the largest corporation in the world, okay, but it has actually a bunch of subcorps in, in there that, you know, that be, become small. You know, it doesn't have to be that difficult to do procurement and acquisition of something that solves a problem. Um, a, you got to know what the problem is you want to solve, as you just pointed out, because otherwise it's garbage in, garbage out. Um, and B, you know, there's just usually an entrepreneur that's probably already solved it. Uh, uh, if not, if they see a big enough market, they will, they'll run down that, that road and, and, and solve it for you. Uh, you just got to make it easier for them to get access, to get deployment of, of the technology. This is why I, I'm, you know, I, I love the work I do with InQtel because at least in a, at least a small slice of, of government intelligence community, we try and facilitate the ability to procure, uh, you know, uh, commercial software for, for, for a branch of the, uh, the government. Um, but uh, the Department of Defense is, um, has been a tough nut to crack around this. Uh, and uh, they're, they're trying to get better. And we're coming up with, I think, new innovative ways to maybe go after the problem, too. And, and so, Ted, you're, we've talked about you're an operator, a founder, investor, and an advisor, not just to tech companies, but also to the U.S. government in four different capacities, all related to national security. You are on a board to advise the Secretary of Homeland Security. You're on a separate DHS Department of Homeland Security board to advise their cybersecurity lead. You uh, work with InQtel, which is the CIA's investment arm uh, on their board, and then also the National Security Agency, NSA, as as a member of a board of advisors there. So can you tell us about, we've talked about your history in Silicon Valley and history with tech companies now also investing for many years. How did you get so close with the national security community? Yeah, it's a, let's step back for a second. I'll, I'll, I'll get into that is. In Silicon Valley, there was very few of us that took an interest in Washington <laughs> for a long time. And I think the belief was, well, let them do their crazy thing there and we'll just do our thing here and, and, and hopefully the, the two will never meet. <laughs> um, I, I kind of thought that was a little short-sighted. Um, I learned from my, my, my partner, John Doerr, had spent lots of time going to Washington and I, 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 I kind of watched what he was doing. Um, and... What you quickly learn is they can do a lot of good and they can do a lot of bad. Uh, and uh, they can think they're doing good and the, the, the secondary effects can be quite bad. So if, if you don't take the time and energy to understand it and spend the time and see if you can help uh, lawmakers and others craft uh, some, some of the policy, you know, you're going to live with what you get. And uh, that can be pretty detrimental over time. So, um, and, and then at one point I became the chairman of the National Venture Capital Association, which is sort of the trade association for the venture industry. And I was in Washington all the time, all, all the time meeting with uh, members of, of Congress and on different policy issues. So I, I spent a lot of time here and, 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 and started to get an appreciation for, for what was going on. I think the very first time I got tapped to do something officially was, um, 
under Secretary Rumsfeld in, in, in DOD, where he wanted to figure out how to get technology into warfighters' hands faster. Um, and uh, he had asked uh, John Kasich at, at the time, who's a congressman from uh, Ohio, the governor of, of Ohio, uh, you know, to help him out with that. And uh, John knew a couple of us. Uh, and uh, he said, well, let's go get Ted involved in this this project. And it, it, and we did that for a couple of years for the Department of Defense. Um, and things I learned there is don't have whatever you're working on get named and don't get a budget. As soon as you have a name and a budget, you're screwed. Uh, because for two years we operated and we were able to identify problems DOD had, bring together some technologists that could help solve those problems or introduce them to people in Silicon Valley that have to deal with like problems, et cetera. And it was working great. Um, it was it was doing good. And then we got a name and a budget and we got shut down for oversight. Uh, uh, and that took two years. And by the time it came out of the oversight review, I was gone. I mean, we we're all gone. So that gave me my taste in, you know, uh, wow, they need help. <laughs> they, 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 they really need help. And because I'm a cybersecurity geek, as, as you, as you pointed out at the beginning, um, I think the original attraction was, well, Ted seems to be able to figure out what we're going to need in the world of cyber, maybe a little bit before others can figure that out. Let's go tap that. Um, he's been going back and forth. He kind of gets Washington. Um, he can, we all want innovation and technology, or at least we theoretically all want innovation and technology. And maybe he can help be that bridge. Um, I think the first person that, that tapped me for, for helping out on NSA was uh, Rick Leggett um, asked whether I would come in and, and, and help out on, on, on some stuff there. And I've had the pleasure of serving in n- numerous different directors o- over the years there. And then, look, I, uh, I make it a point to truly understand all the different facets uh, inside of Washington that pertain to national security to figure out how my background in dealing with the commercial sector can help that. If, if at the end of the day, you're, if your shining light is, you know, how do we make the country and the world a safer place? You know, I, I have my little slice of that, which is, you know, I, I do it through technology and, and innovation and, and entrepreneurs, but you got to work with all these different groups. Um, it's, you know, it, it, as, as we pointed out earlier, DOD, nothing's easy in this town, right? So you're, you, you got to make sure you have your relationships a, a, across the board in so many different places. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, it, it, so I, that kind of can I explain anything that has to do with innovation, except on, on DHS, um, yeah, I don't know, the Secretary Mayorkas asked. So, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, this could be fascinating. There's, there's so much about immigration and border control. What do I, I don't know anything about any of that. But. I think one of um, my fears is we think of the industrial base in industrial terms, not in network, you know, very fluid and agile terms. Um, but I am optimistic. I'm seeing, you know, you're, you're a 30-year veteran to bring, but I've seen the last five years, the amount of cross-pollination and interest from, you know, traditionally commercial startup uh, in national security is really starting to grow. Are you seeing that same trend? And do you think do you think we're in a positive vector of bringing the two communities together and to figure out how to really leverage all of the strength in the nation? Or you see that kind of flatlining or you see it getting worse? Uh, I don't see it getting worse. 
I see in certain times and places it's getting better and others I sort of see the same rhetoric I've seen for years. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and parse that out. Everyone wants to talk about public-private partnerships. I love public-private partnerships. Kind of, you know, the alliteration is great. So it sort of works. Um, then, you, you know, just peel the onion back one layer. So what do you want, like, what do you want from the private sector? Let, 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 let's talk about it. And what are you willing to give? <laughs> um, partnership means like there's a give and take versus a give and a give. Um, and that, that's usually where a lot of these things fall down is, is understanding the give and take aspect of a partnership. Um, and I think that's starting to finally break down. Uh, oh, we, we need to offer the private sector something uh, so that they care. They don't just have to, you know, care because we're the public sector and they're doing good. Um, and, uh, I, 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 like, I, I love seeing it. It's, uh, uh, uh cause you brought up in industrial policy. I, I love talking about industrial policy. So I, I got, although I got to bring this back to the dib as well. Um, but look at this, the, the, the new, um, inflation reduction act. Um, uh, you know, it's like public private policy, um, on steroids, like, you know, kind of for real, you know, some subsidies, some, some, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's a little bit more carrot than stick, which is probably the right way to go for that. I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I'm a policy wonk when it comes to cyber policies. So I'm, I'm going to stay away from the, all the macroeconomic stuff. Although I do opine on that from time to time. Um, but my, my point is it, it, it starts to show a recognition, but we got to give, to take, you know, we got, we did, and I, and I, so therefore I, I love that ab- about it. Um, and with the, the end goal in sight as, you know, we're, we're going to do something about climate or, uh, uh, et cetera. So when I see that happening and different groups, I think are, are getting a little bit better at that than, than others, you know, it, it's CISA doing the JCDC, which is a, a, a partnership with the private sector to share data, knowing full well, that we got to give data to get data and we got to give value to get value. That's a change. That's a change. It's a positive change. And I, I, uh, I, I do love, um, I do love seeing that in terms of the evolution of, uh, the dib. Um, and, uh, and then I want to get back into industrial policy if you guys want to go there, but in terms of the evolution of the dib, uh, I, I, I used to go out of my way. This, pisses all my dib friends off. I'm not so sure I have any dib friends, but, uh, you know, I thought, I thought it should be illegal for the department of defense to, uh, use the dib to do any software project period, like illegal, you know, and, and people look at me, unfortunately it was a vice chairman, the joint chiefs was sat sitting next to me at at dinner one night where I was posing this to him and he thought it was insane. And like, can I, can I change seats here? But my, my point is, Obviously, it really shouldn't be illegal, but it was it, it was that um, there are far more efficient ways to to build software <laughs> for far faster, far cheaper, and far higher quality. Why wouldn't we do it that way? Versus these folks who are awesome at building weapon systems, missiles, airplanes, ships. You know, uh, you know the the hard the, the the stuff that we're never going to do out in Silicon Valley, um, nor should we be doing out in Silicon Valley or, or, or elsewhere. So, and that's an evolution to me of the Pentagon, hopefully recognizing that it really should be one of the world's largest software companies. 
not hardware companies. That it, and, and therefore, how do we do that? How do we get the best of the best creating software for us? And I, I believe a new digital dib will arise from this. Um, I'm, I, I've been fortunate to, I, I sit on the board of a company called Rebellion Defense, which is a good example of this. But there's, there's going to be other companies that are going to come from the Silicon Valley-like model, attracting the best of the best engineers, using equity to incent, uh, to go solve really hard, probably mostly software problems for the Department of Defense and, and, and all the different agencies. And um, what will happen? VOD will get better systems, faster, far cheaper. Um, they might not know what to do with that. But, you know, that, that's, that, you know that, that's, that's what will ultimately happen. And when those companies, initial companies are successful, more will follow because that's how my industry works. Um, you know, if the, if the money can be made, they will come. The resources will be there. And the DOD doesn't really have to do anything other than buy, you know, because it solves their problem. Uh, I, I don't, you don't really need anything else than them. Digital dib. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ted, you have a great track record in building successful operations. Um, one of the issues we like to look at when it comes to the defense industrial base is almost this disappearing middle. So you've got consolidation at the top and several large primes and then a lot of small companies that are newer entrants, very interested in supporting the Department of Defense. I agree with you where I think there's this increased appetite on both sides to do so. Um, but a, a lot of the efforts as of late are to provide a lot of smaller companies with smaller checks and give them the opportunity to test things out over in a corner. And, and some folks think that's diluting opportunities. What's your take on this approach? Do you have any recommendations about what we could be doing better? Curious for your thoughts. Yeah, look, I... I like to solve problems. I like to solve them fast and I like to solve them as efficiently as possible. Some of those words don't necessarily go with government bureaucracies. So, um, and so I don't, I don't have a lot of patience for it, you know, is, uh, you know, I, I, maybe is another reason why these people ask me to help them out because I, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of patience for the bureaucracy. I, I, uh, uh, I, you know, when we start talking a little bit more about the security of the country, I'll, I'll, I'll show you where I, I think that, really hurts us uh, uh, quite often. But when we're, when we're talking about just innovation, the idea is find the best people that are solving this problem and buy from them, you know, <laughs> you know, spreading, spreading it out like peanut butter to a whole lot of folks thinking you're, you know, it's, it's, you know, treating it almost like it's a, 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 a nonprofit uh, situation. I don't think is going to end up solving your, your, your problem at the end of the day. Um, and so I think we just got to look at what is the purpose because these are all tax dollars that get spent. So what, what are, is, is the purpose to do small business generation or is the purpose to solve the problems of the Department of Defense? Um, and I'm not so sure those two things align, uh, you know, if, if, if you think both of those are your, are your purpose. And, and certainly a way to incentivize that growth, too, because we're, we've looked into some of these programs are incentivizing you to stay as a small company. And ultimately, from an economic perspective, we want to help these companies grow. And so uh, to your point earlier, it's maybe not having the U.S. government figure out how to be an investor, but be a better customer in, in that uh, sense. I'm 100 percent there. I, uh, you know, if uh, I, I talked about the uh, uh, the IRA earlier, if there's a part of it that I'm a little scared of. I hope it works out well. It's the 239 billion uh, that is used somewhat as 
investment dollars by the Department of Energy. Um, and, you know, hopefully they've figured out a lot of things, but, you know, picking tech and picking companies, I think is really hard for the government to, to do versus let those of us that do it for a living figure that out and just incent uh, a, an adoption cycle and incent an acquisition cycle uh, would be a good use of it. So that's, um, so I'm, I'm, I agree with you. <laughs> I, I want to pivot to the economic outlook and how it may impact some of these issues. I've heard you say in the past, no one wants to be less safe. So maybe we won't see an impact necessarily to cybersecurity as we would other fields. But as an investor, if you have an entrepreneur coming to you and saying, hey, we want to do business with the Department of Defense in this market, does it change your reaction or what would your take on that be with the economic outlook? It wouldn't be the um, it wouldn't be the first customer I would be telling any, any entrepreneur to go after. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, at the end of the day, these companies live and breathe by purchase orders. Um, so, you know, they need cash coming in, uh, you know, and often you start the dance with the department of defense and you're, you're still dancing 12 months later. These guys tend to work uh, you know, if it's an enterprise software company in three month cycles, uh, you know, we, we do a, a proof of concept, prove it out, get into a negotiation for purchase. So somewhere between three and six months, they're, they're, they're actually able to get a purchase order and everything. So our typical advice is, you know, don't go after DOD right away. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's a go after some low hanging fruit, which is going to be just other areas of the global 1000 companies or, or even smaller than that uh, to, to, to sell to. And therefore, in the economic cycle, the way it affects the venture world is around capital, capital preservation. You know, can you raise capital as uh, easily and in, in abundance as you could in the past? Um, well, when the markets are this volatile um, and uh, uh, capital tends to tighten some, and so you tend to want to give advice to your entrepreneurs is, you know, save, save your money, um, uh, you know, be, be a little more rational. Don't assume you can just raise more money at a higher price, uh, you know, like you, you could do for almost a decade, maybe 12 years, last 12 years, you just always assume that it was always going to be up and to the right. Don't assume that anymore. Um, so therefore your cash flow just becomes that much more important. Therefore you need customers that you can execute on and, and collect cash from sooner. Now, once the government is a customer, they pay their bills on time. They're, they're a great customer. You know, don't get me wrong. So. And they, they continue to spend. So there'll be less disruption as you may see on the commercial side on the theme of outlook. Uh, I went back and something I like to do when I prep for these is dust off some old discussions or presentations that our guests have given. And I listened to one, uh, Ted, that you gave in, in 2013. And the topic of Google Glasses came up and you said, you know, without a doubt, there is going to be a focus on wearables, but it might not be glasses. It might be something like a necklace, necklace or a watch. And so I wanted to get your take. You, you weren't wrong there. I know we all have our uh, digital watches and stay connected in those wearable ways, rings and the like. What does the cybersecurity field look like going forward and how might innovations in that sense impact national security or anything keep you up at night on that front? Always. I've been doing this 36 years. So uh, on the security front. So, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, the bad guys have all gotten smarter. They have gotten better resourced. Uh, when I started on this, nation states really didn't participate. It was the, 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 the average hacker sort of thing. So it's, uh, 
uh, the sophistication of it is, uh, is, is really tough. Uh, if I had to pick some themes, which is, you know, something I end up talking about, but I, I think the things I care about right now, um, uh, something I call zero authority. People like to call it zero trust. I just call it zero authority, which is don't allow anyone or any system or any workload to have access to anything except by exception. And so how would you do that? Like, you know, versus, you know, let's let everyone do everything and then we'll figure out what they shouldn't be doing and then we'll try and cut them off later. Uh, and so I try and invert the model of, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just call it zero authority and, and, uh, and what infrastructure would be necessary to make that happen across the entire uh, technology substrate from the individual to the workload to, to, to all aspects of that. So that there's one. I'll, I'll throw a few of these out and see which ones you want to chat about. But, um, uh, the thing that I am most concerned about and spend the most personal time on is the use of an open democracy against itself. Um, and uh, I think that is one of the things we're all wrestling with, and it takes its form in, in so many different ways. Uh, some people like to talk about disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, whatever. Some some might want to talk about, you know, media that is fake, commonly called deep fakes. But uh, 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 you, you could um, you could talk about just the use of the internet itself um, and the infrastructure that gets used for a lot of really private purposes and and how how well designed is it really for making you know doing that um and being so it's it's this idea that um we are an open democracy with open infrastructure um and how that gets reversed on ourselves um ultimately um and then for what do we do about it uh i i have i've I've been starting to talk about this mostly hopefully just get people's attention that this whole disinformation stuff is just the new malware. Uh, I, I, I use that as the analogy because at least now, finally, after 35 years, people get what malware is um, and, and we've taken it seriously and we've tried to prevent it. Um, and uh, the, the conversation around disinformation becomes so politicized. And I don't, I don't, I, I don't care about that. I just think that people, individuals, and I think corporations need to make decisions based upon accurate information. How do we make sure that that happens? And if it's not, that's to me like malware. It's it's doing something bad. It's doing something bad on on purpose, um, and it's a little bit more insidious because it's hidden as being uh, good. Malware is you know, I, you know, I go look for a signature. I you know, chances are it's not supposed to be there, and I you know, I get rid of it um, when 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 it's a piece of malware, or Trojan, or however you 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 you, you want to go after it. So, um, so that would be. Uh, that's probably, I think, one of the big issues that we're all facing today and how you go after that. How do you go after that from a technology standpoint? How do you go after it from an adoption standpoint? I think is going to be a, 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 major, um, a major concern. Um, I think there's just new innovation around the new workforce. Uh, uh, and how do you secure remote workers? How do you secure workers who, uh, you know, don't just live by, hey, Come into my office. Here's your computer. These are the apps you uh, you access, and and that's it. You go look at any average worker's desk. They're they're using forty different outside services, 
um, with, you know, and, 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 and maybe they're using their, their, their Google suite or their, 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 their uh, Microsoft products as well, but not mainly. <laughs> and so, you know, and so that, and, you know, the, the, the security of a, a system is inversely proportional to the number of networks, number of nodes, number of applications uh, uh, to, to that system. So it just uh, expands exponentially where, how insecure a system can get. And that's kind of the new work style. So how do you, how are you going to deal with that? And what, what, uh, uh, what technology would we come and, and put in place to, to solve some of those issues? So I rattle off a, a, a few um, of, of things that do keep me up at night and, you know, will uh, keep us busy at Ballistic. <laughs> hey, so Ted, uh, some great ones in there. The one I didn't hear. So I, I think a pop, an enduring competitive advantage of a democracy is its ability to attract partners allies and whatnot in working with the types of folks you work on the government they really struggle i think even more so than others of how to integrate allies and partners into cybersecurity or in homeland defense or intelligence what's your take on how we can work better with our allies and partners leverage if if, if i'm using the network analogy bring more of those nodes into the network whether it's you know the talent or the capacities, and, and how does that apply in the kinds of fields you've spent your your time in? Yeah, let's let's zoom up on on that for a second because I think it it hits one of the seminal issues that the United States faces today, um, and which is the U.S. has been used to being the sole big dog in the world um, and having its way in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and now it has a competitor. And I think as a country, we've had a lot of trouble adjusting to having a competitor on par with us. Um, and obviously I'm talking about China in, in this case, because a, a lot of what I get called into now is how to make us more competitive with China and what to do about that and everything. And, um, and you have a competitor that also doesn't play by the same rules that we play by. And that makes everyone freak out and uncomfortable and not know what to do. And, you know, how do you, how do you compete against a competitor that doesn't do the same things that we do and competes the same way that we compete and everything. And, and you can, you know, you can get all wound up about it and you can complain about it and, and, you know, do tariffs about it and, you know, do kind of whatever you want. But at the end of the day, that's the way it is. And so we're all, I think, I think that um, Western democracies and our, ourselves included are all struggling with how do we compete in today's world? Because at the end of the day, economic security is national security. And so a lot of what I spend my time on is around economic security as it pertains to national security. And, and therefore, what's the role innovation plays in helping economic security? Because it ends up translating into national security uh, uh, issues. And so um, I think that's a lot of what uh, kind of the rewiring of our economy is going to be about. Uh, and where um, I really applaud things like the CHIPS Act as, as just as, as an, as an example. And, and I hope we hope we see this for decades to come in the sense of uh uh, people who call that industrial policy, people also get scared of calling things industrial policy. So I've, I've changed it. Uh, I just think the U.S. needs a business plan. 
And it's because I'm a venture capitalist. I can talk about business plans and at least know somewhat what I'm talking about. And I, and I think ultimately the U.S. government needs a business plan. It needs to know what industries it feels is strategically important for it to dominate. I mean that, dominate. Um, and then line up the resources of the country and our allies, this to get your question, Hondo, to compete and win in those areas. Um, and uh, you can't be all things to all people. You can't win everything. But I think it's this idea of partnership with an agenda. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've seen us go too far to being, you know, isolationism won't get you there. It doesn't get you, you know, the partnerships with, with, with the folks you want the partnerships with. And complete and utter globalization doesn't get you there either. Um, uh, you know, I remember reading The World is Flat uh, from Tom Friedman, being fascinated by it. But then you could easily start to see how everyone's economies start to get interconnected and how there's good in that. But you can, you can point to how it's going to be bad. <laughs> um, and we've, seen, we've seen examples of that. And so what are we going to do? Which of these segments do we want to own because it's strategically important for the U.S. to make sure that some portion of it is not in some authoritarian regime's hands um, to ensure our economic security. Um, and I think ultimately that is what the country is kind of struggling to transition to. And it'll take us, because we're a, a, a bureaucratic uh, democracy, it's going to take us decades to, to get there versus you know laying out a five-year plan where, where it just happens. I get that. I, I get that. But that's... That's what I see happening. Um, and I think that'll bode very well, by the way, for my industry to, to, you know, to, to tie it back. I mean, I, I think innovation is ultimately going to be uh, the, the big driver of where this growth comes from. But we can bring in so many other partners as part of that uh, and line it all up. Uh, you know, think about if we decided we're going to put tons of this manufacturing of some area of industry that we care about down in Central America or Mexico and, uh, and train and, and build that, that area up. It might help solve some of our immigration issues that, 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 that the country deals with. So it, it sort of lines up with strategic initiatives, but you need a long-term vision um, and not, you know, two-year two year segments of time to, to pull some of these things off. But uh, I, I, I think innovation will be one of the great ways to try and enable all that. Got one final question, Ted, and there are so many great ideas there. Um, but to hit on something you said earlier, when you're evaluating companies for investment, the first thing you said was you're looking at the people. And so talent is going to be, at the end of the day, the driver in terms of development of these technologies, implementation and use of these technologies, and, and making this happen. How, how do you think about talent and what we can be doing better to attract talent to the national security realm? Well, I, you know, I, I, it starts in education, um, and uh, I've, I've I've always believed this. You know, we we ought to look at our, the, especially the uh, engineering schools in this country, higher education at the engineering schools, and then hopefully down into the high school level as well, and have uh, a, a mandate that we you know we would like to see. You know, I, I always put my cyber hat on, so it's kind of where where, where I skew it. But you know, we want to see. 200,000 
cyber graduates a year. We want to see 400,000 cyber graduates a year. And by the way, let's, we'll give them, uh, you know, and if they do this and graduate this degree, I think this would be a great use of, of grant money. Um, not loans, not debt, grant money uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, for them. And, and they got to come serve. Have them come serve for uh, uh, four years in, inside of uh, you know, CISA or NSA or CIA or DOD or where, wherever we need the uh, U.S. Cyber Command, wherever we need the talent um, and make that a mandate because eventually they'll be out in the private sector. And so we bring them in, train them, put them out in the private sector. You now have people who have served both in government and the private sector, which I think is, is better to get at these, the public-private partnerships that we talked about earlier and the understanding of the two. Um, but I would make it a major initiative that this is what we're going to do. And I've seen little pockets of this. So, it, it, you know, it, 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 uh, um, it's, it's good. So that's, that's one part of the, the, the question. The other part has just been a, a, a political hot potato for a long time. But immigration, you know, the H-1B visas, uh, you know, think about well over half the companies started in, in, uh, in the United States the, the, have all been done by immigrants. Um, and they employ, you know, millions of Americans in, 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 these, in these companies. These immigrants become Americans and, uh, and they're great for the economy. So why you would not staple, a, you know, a green card onto every PhD candidate uh, that comes through here, it's a diploma, I don't, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Keep them here. You know, these people come here to, to get their education, get trained in, um, and I would do it obviously specifically in the areas that line up with the business plan. So if you're going to come here and get educated and get your PhD in robotics and we want to dominate robotics, we're going to, you, you, you're a citizen, you're American citizen. <laughs> like, um, you know, what do you, what else can we do for you? <laughs> um, and you can be pretty systematic about it. Um, but you just got to decide that that's what you want to do. Uh, and you know, I guess it's easier for me to say it on a podcast for them, for anyone to ever execute it. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ted, on behalf of Ben's and I know we're all proud members and I think we can use Ben's as a vehicle to encourage more collaboration like yours with the Silicon Valley stakeholders and national security community. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I have some takeaways, just this idea of how important it is for two way work and effort between both the private sector and uh, the U.S. government is important. Uh, the future of a digital div, I'm definitely going to use that term going forward. Um, but thank you so much. We're going to take some of these ideas and continue to push these through Ben's. Uh, thanks for your time, Ted. Thank you guys for having me on. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.